If you liked hearing Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson provide secrets on negotiating for total compensation, dealing with microaggressions, or simply being able to just be your authentic self, then welcome to season two of Secrets. Are you one of the only on your job? Do you wonder why the same type of people continue getting promotions? Have you dreamed of getting to the top but don't know how? Welcome to Secrets Season 2, a podcast devoted to showcasing dilemmas faced by underrepresented employees in their quest to climb the career ladder. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, have experienced the corporate grind for more than 20 years. Now they want to share their adventures, pitfalls, and C-suite secrets that they've learned along the way. So let's fill up those cups and get started. Here are your hosts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Secrets. Hey, Keith, man, what's been going on with you, brother? What's on your mind? Hey, I'm doing pretty good today. I'm actually feeling real, real good. Uh-oh. And I'm excited about this episode we're doing today on colorism. It's going to be good. And hey, it's another taboo topic, but we're going there. We're yeah, going there. Absolutely. Right. And as I was getting myself ready, uh, getting myself pumped for this podcast, Ricky, I started going through my CD rack and ran across some old India Ari. So you wasn't streaming. You was How going through stream- it. I, I, yep, old school. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, old school, right? And y'all remember that song by India Ari, I Am Not My Hair? Oh, yeah. The lyrics, I am not my yep. hair, I am not my skin, I am not your expectation, I am the soul that lives within. Mm. Man, okay, Woo. I'm going to I'm have to go find my CD now, right. you know? But man, look, Keith, man, that really, really takes me back, man. And thinking about colorism, it also took me back, you know, to, you know, how I do it, man. It took yeah. me back to like a Spike Lee joint. Way you know, back. <laughs> school days. Okay? Oh, boy. So you remember like that big ass fight in the hair salon between the light-skinned sisters and the dark-skinned sisters? Ooh-wee. Man, they was going at it, They man. were going at it. <laughs> they were talking out their face, but, you know, so it was, that was a fun, fun time. And, you know, Seriously, you know, colorism not only impacts the black community, but it's also prevalent in a number of communities of color, right? Everybody mm-hmm. has this issue with who's light, who's dark. And I remember even when I was a little kid, this poem that used to go around. I don't know if it's a poem, but it's a little saying. It's like, if you're black, stay back. If mm-hmm. you're brown, stick around. If you're yellow, you're, you're mellow. mellow. Yep. And if you're white, you're all right. <laughs> Look, man, I mean, we've, we've grown up with these things, and, and sometimes you don't even know why you're playing patty cake or hopscotch in this stuff. That's you know right. what I mean? But it's this true. is some of the things that we hear, and it's embedded, you know, with the uh, undertones of colorism, right? Yep, sure is. So in this episode, you know, for our audience, we will hear from three amazing sisters, right? They will share their experiences with colorism from early childhood to today. They will share how colorism intersects with race and class. We will also provide receipts, as we always do, on the impacts of colorism in our society. And finally, we'll close out with two secrets on what we can do to level the playing field. Yeah, no doubt. This is going to be so much fun, Ricky. And before we bring in our guests, I just want to point out that this concept of colorism goes way back. You know, in the U.S., you know, this slavery kind of perpetuated this whole concept as slaves with lighter skin tones worked in the big house mm-hmm. while those darker skin brothers like like me mm-hmm. we were out in the fields mm-hmm. right and that light skin mainly came through because you know the masses were raping those dark skin sisters yeah yeah and as cruel as it is it's true mm-hmm. you know and but again we find ways to 
make this into something else. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, and I think of all of the derogatory language that is used to describe people of various melanin favors, right? Yep. From high yellow, red bone, mm-hmm. darky, crow, light, bright, piss colored, cocoa, dark chocolate, white chocolate, even, Ooh. you know, mocha, blue, black, tar baby, midnight black. I mean, Look, and the I, list goes on. We we hear this shit all the time, all the time. But this shit has got to stop. Absolutely, yeah, right. And so enough of us talk about it. Why don't we just jump in with our guests and hear what they have to say? Let's do it. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for for being a part of the conversation today. And why don't we just start out by having you introduce yourself? If you have a little story to share about yourself and the first prompt will be also around when did you first realize that you were black? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Just to get you thinking there a little bit. Why don't we start with Cecilia, then we'll go to Jamie and Rania. How about that? Right on. I'm Cecilia Green. I hail from Los Angeles, California. Yay. Yay. Um, yay. Yeah. <laughs> living in the Bay Area, representing Oakland right now. The question of when did I realize I was black? I think, and if I if I go way back to childhood, I think my first remembrance of being Black is when I was in the fourth grade. There was a boy that I liked. His name was Jonathan. I'm, I'm dropping names, too. Mm-hmm. Jonathan. Jonathan was Asian and Black, and I thought he was fine, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I thought he was the cutest thing going. And I liked Jonathan, but Jonathan did not like me. And I never really understood kind of what the deal was, kind of what the issue was. But, you know, we would play and I'd be around. He's like, I don't want to talk to her. And then one day he decided that he he wanted me to just completely stop liking him. And he tried to run up and hit me. And he was like, I don't like you, Darky. And Darky was like, whoa, like I never really had seen myself in contrast to the other children, right? And it was just very jarring. And that stuck with me as a memory that I've kind of kept over the time. My name is Jamie and Jordan. I actually was born in Boston, Massachusetts, but I grew up in Hong Kong, which definitely impacted my experience as a Black person. And I'm adopted. So I have one Black brother, three white brothers, and white parents. So I think that my experience as a Black woman is probably very different than those on the call today. And certainly growing up in my very early years going to school outside of the United States really kind of shaped me differently than most people that I run into. Because even though I'm light and my brother is as well, we were still Black in Hong Kong. So I think that, you know, I didn't have the same experience when I was very young. It probably wasn't until we moved back to the States that I really probably experienced that. But I would probably say my earliest memory would probably be age four, school time. Certainly being in a family where they didn't look like me except for one other person was different. And I would say... In terms of the topic of colorism, I was thinking about this because I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, I thought about it before, but I hadn't really thought about it in terms of, I, I think it's just one more thing that we carry into the room and it's how we're perceived by others. It's how, I don't know that it necessarily influenced how I felt about myself, but it definitely, I know I'm received differently in different circles. Ronnie, welcome. 
Yeah, thanks. Really great stories. Super rich. That's a fascinating story. So I am from lower, I'm from LA, but lower Alabama. <laughs> 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 Girl, now that's not LA. Okay. <laughs> it's totally LA. Okay. But in lower, lower Alabama, Mobile specifically, where, I, where I'm sitting today, I came from a family of eight. And we were on the struggle bus. We're very poor, kind of growing up. And we'll talk about class at some point. Just a very challenging childhood. That was my kind of the thing I, I held on to for many, many years. It's kind of that to propel me through life. When I realized I was Black, I think I came out of the womb knowing that. So my parents were Muslim in the South in the post-Farrakhan era. I mean, I was a little Muslim girl from teeny tiny, you know, head wrap, everything, right? And so you're in the masjid, every, you're in the masjid, you're hearing the messages, right? In the post-Farrakhan era, right? Kind of the, you know, for mainstream, kind of the um, Malcolm X era, right? He had gone and become more tolerant and more orthodox Muslim. And that's where my parents landed. So, you know, there were, the, the teachings were there, the understanding of, our place as African-Americans in society, certainly the Black male struggle, the Black woman struggle was very prominent in my upbringing. So I've always known I was Black, <laughs> no doubt about it. The question is, when did I realize I was like super underprivileged is the difference there for me. Where I want to start off with is just kind of defining colorism so we can kind of maybe even set t- context for the discussion. So the textbook definition is prejudice or discrimination, especially within a racial or ethnic group, favoring people with lighter skin over those with darker skin. So again, we've seen this in the um, Hispanic community. We've seen this in the Asian community. We see it in the uh, African-American community. I mean, we see it you know, constantly. So it exists. Okay. Well, especially when you got a definition for it, it exists. <laughs> okay. So as defined by the dictionary, you know, version of it here, maybe we can just spend some time talking about from each one of you all, like, does that definition resonate, you know, with you? And maybe we can kind of see where this takes us. I would say, yes, the definition does resonate. As I was saying earlier, I think that when you have privilege, you don't necessarily know you, you have to be very self-aware to know that you have it, to recognize it. I think if, if you talk to the average white person, they're not going to really recognize all the privileges that they have every single day, right? So I, I think that being on the lighter side, being light skin, so to speak, has definitely benefited me in different ways, probably many that I'm not aware of. And so it's not something, so it's, as we relate this to work, When I walk into a room, I'm thinking about I'm walking in there as a Black person, as a Black woman. I'm not necessarily thinking about I'm walking in as a light-skinned Black woman, Mm -hmm. but I do recognize that throughout the globe, and I travel quite a bit, my team is global, and I've lived outside of the U.S., so I know that that is real and that people do perceive lightness, whiteness to be better is I was like thinking, you know, when have I seen examples of where I might've gotten better treatment than someone else who is darker skinned? And I can't give you one example, but that's because there's like no one. I mean, <laughs> when I think about the people that are at the table, I'm A, the only one. And if I widen that to say, okay, they're not at the table because they're the same level, let's go down several levels. I still don't see anyone 
that is darker. That's mm-hmm. an issue in itself. So in my role, you have to literally go to front line to find that. Look, we, we already know a lot of the stats. We know how this works, but it like every time I hear it, it doesn't make me feel better. It pisses me off every time I hear it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and at the end of the day, when people will hear this episode and they hear us, you know, talking about colorism, we already know we're going to have people say they're just being sensitive or they're making something up or they're, you know, they, they're, they're making something out of nothing or this, that, or the other, because they haven't necessarily had to live in our shoes, you know, for this, right. They haven't had to suffer any of these injustices, whether it be in your own community, whether it be at work, whether it be even within your family, <laughs> you know? So again, we're, well, we're, we're making stuff up. Yes. And it's, in, I mean, it's, it's so ingrained because institutionalism, racism is real. Yeah. And everything we learn from when we're little itty bitties on up is all about that color scale, right? Mm-hmm. And whether it's within the black community, the color scale, or just in general, white is the best. And darkest is not it just in our language, everything we we think about, whether it's conscious or unconscious. Mm-hmm. And we have to work to change that. So, Rania, what, what, what about uh, and thank you for sharing, Jamie. I mean, that that, you know, actually that connects some dots, you know, for us here as we start kind of moving, uh, you know, uh, south on this discussion. So, Rania, what about you? How does that definition, the book definition resonate with you? And, and would you maybe define it differently? I think that the book definition, you know, that makes perfect sense, right? I, as I, as I thought about it, you know, how have, how have I experienced colorism? I remember studying as a kid, kind of in Indian culture, right? The North and the South and how fairer skinned Indians, even today, right? Mm -hmm. To do better. And if you think back in our African-American history, there's this book called, she's OPZ. It just, it, it escapes me. It's about the origin of Jack and Jill. I can't think of the name of that book. I will find it. It addresses colorism, you know, and, and the, the color of that organization when it started out. Same thing with the sororities and fraternities, the paperback tests, right? These things have existed in our history for a long time. My personal experience, so I, I agree it's within races, it's within cultures. My personal experience is that I never, I never really thought about colorism giving me any kind of edge because I grew up under kind of the, in, in, in the eye of this social class, that was, that was, our, that was my issue. Like I'm battling a social class issue here mm-hmm. to be same equal, but I just didn't have all the same experiences. Right. So I'm feeling like, I feel like I'm catching up, but in that sense, I still see myself as black, right? No different, but poor black. Right. So those, that construct of like lighter than others was never a prominent thing in my mind. I abs that 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 it, one way I abhor. Growing up, and this is more social, you hear it from the men in the community. I hear it from men, right? Largely, less women, but more men that make comments about your skin color or your hair or how they want to marry, right? And this, there's some historical perspective to this. I was reading up on today in the in that kind of setting critical race theory. But how people want to marry, they want to marry light skin so their kids are ex. I, mean, I don't know how many times I've heard that shit. And I'm just like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, right? But looking back at history, mulattoes back kind of post-Civil War were pitted against Black people. 
and aligned with white people, right? If it went down, right? There is text written that says that the mulatto, a poor black, they will align with us. They're more docile, invite them in, right? So this, this construct, you know, was born, you know, kind of hundreds of years ago, hundred years ago or so, right? And has, and, and has carried through. So I hear it, I hear it in the community. I hear it from men. I hear darker skinned men say they want to marry X to, to make their children lighter. And there's also this, this another, it's not a theory anymore, but people, women, it is said that kind of back in the day, if they were, if they were lighter skinned, they fared better in the marriage market. So these are, I mean, this is, this, there's a lot of longstanding history here that, you know, is, is a part of kind of how we landed where we are today from a colorism standpoint. So it's, it's, these are interesting facts to know, kind of to ground yourself. Where I had a personal experience with colorism, my mother is fair-skinned, my father is brown, very brown, very brown, lovely chocolate man. And most of us are, my complexion shades kind of here and there, like just a little bit of variance. But I have a niece, my first niece, my sister's little girl, and she is chocolate brown. Lovely, beautiful, lovely, beautiful girl, Right. I never saw Lonnie for her color, but there was a point as she was growing up that I wondered if she would be treated differently. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. She got me mad. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, just making sure that we don't, there's no hint of a self-esteem issue or a value issue or a worth issue with her. Right. Because you've got all these family members and aunts that are, you know, if she's experiencing colorism within our within our family as a, as the brown girl, right? I became much more sensitive to the issue having a, a, a my baby, you know, my ace boom niece, like the one, the first one out, experiencing these issues, and so I had to pay a lot more attention to her, right, and reinforce her. So I would say that it came full circle for me. Like I, I had the privilege of not recognizing that, that I was privileged in that sense. I guess I'll say. But also recognize that when people in your family have those struggles, you have to wake up and listen to people who express this challenge, right? As we're talking about this, it does stir up something in you, right? And it and it makes you angry, okay? Mm-hmm. It makes you upset. It's not right. You're talking about the paper bag test. We can go back further than that and talk about slavery, who was in the house and who was in the field. You know what I mean? We can talk about a lot of those things where it's th- those messages, like we have to work extra hard to make sure that everyone, no matter what hue, you know, we are, you know, whatever shade of melanin you are, you know, feel love that they're still in the village, that they're still in the family. Like we got to work hard because it's a whole bunch of shit that we didn't even create, but it's a lot of stuff that we still permeate though. You know what I'm saying? We still, you know, keep it going. So we got to work hard there. So I appreciate, you know, the story. So Cecilia, my sister, why don't you uh, talk to us about that definition and how that you know, resonates with you or if you would maybe even define it differently? No, I don't define it differently. I think the textbook definition is spot on. I think a lot of one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is pretty much whether Ronnie and Jamie were talking about this idea of awareness, right? All of this colorism is really so closely tied to this racism, this externalized racism. Colorism is nothing but internalized racism. Mm -hmm. Every conversation, everything we see, the ideals of beauty, the ideals of what's right and what's not right is centered on this idea of whiteness. 
everything starts from the center of whiteness and then goes off from there, right? So the lighter you are, the closer you are to white, the ability to pass, it appears to be less threatening, less intimidating. How that plays out in the workplace looks really interesting too, right? Where, you know, sometimes I, I, I love the fact that, you know, I think Irani and Jenny, there's just not even awareness that, it, you know, first we're like, we're presenting, we're Black women, right? But we, even in that peeling back of that layer, we're Black women and then we're also light-skinned and dark-skinned Black women. And how does that affect and the importance of just the acknowledgement? Like, I think this conversation is for us. And when I say us, I mean Black people. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying, I don't think our, this episode, podcast, is for, it's for the masses. I really honestly think it's for the people of color who are perpetuating this every day and not really even knowing it, right? And being able, it's something special to have the privilege to be able to not think about it, right? And to not have it show up, right? But we know that it happens. We have, we see it happen in pay equity gaps, right? We know that darker skin hue folks, there's plenty of research out there about it, get paid at a lower rate than those who are of lighter hue. There's been tons of research on that. We know that the hiring and promotion velocities for darker skinned folks are slower than those of lighter skinned folks. We also know that depending on your cadence and how you speak and how close to sounding white, you may sound you're less intimidating and more acceptable in certain places, right? And I think that this is just something that we kind of go along with. We all somewhat have bought into it, right? My my voice with y'all is very different than my voice at work. Right. And why is that? Because that's a level of comfort that I have to provide for them. Right. So for those those few folks that are non-black that get close enough to see the rest of it. Right. They're like, oh, OK. Right. They're like, oh, right. They get to see the multifaceted nature of who I am. Right. Because I present one way at work versus how I present outside of work. And sometimes it's alarming for folks. But it's all in this idea of trying to make myself palatable to the masses. So when you look at that within the Black community, and I'm only speaking for them, I know it happens across another groups, I think about that in the Black community, to have that internalized racism show up, like I'm already, as a dark-skinned woman, doing the most with others. The last thing I want to do is do the most with my own, right, where I'm having to show up differently, where I'm sometimes finding that there is a little bit of, not persecution, but a little bit of a dismissiveness towards me as a person. There's been many times in my life where I've walked in the rooms and been ignored for others, for other light-skinned folks that are like, there's the preference. I was sharing with um, Jamie and Arania, like back in the day, it used to be nothing for a dude to come up to me to my light-skinned homegirls, right? And be like, oh, can you hook me up with your homegirl? Absolutely not. But that would be that, that would be their way of getting in. And it wasn't that I felt like I wasn't attractive or anything like that. Because sometimes those girls weren't as attractive as I was, but it didn't matter because light skin was the way to go, right? To to all the points mentioned previously, right? I think the point of what I'm trying to get is I want to drive awareness of this because you want to want that the, the privilege gets acknowledged. If nothing else, the privilege is there and that we watch out for each other when these things are happening, specifically either in personal or in, in business, right? Because when you're in the room, when you're a senior leader, when you're talking to others and you're watching, pay attention to the patterns that occur. Because sometimes if you're not tuned in to that bias, that skin tone bias, it will show up to your point, Danny, around not seeing any of them. It's already not a lot. And then the ones that actually do get to the top do not have dark skin hues most of the time, right? And that's close. And I'm even say that's a lot on the female side more than the male. Like I think males. Absolutely. Right. I think males have a little bit of an easier time sliding in that route. 
But definitely when it looks at the, the, the female side of it all, just being aware of it is what, if I had to like drop a, a dime on what needs to come out of this conversation is being aware so that you can call it out when you see it. That's what I'll share. No, agreed. And watching our own bias too, right? Because and calling people on it. I know you meant earlier it was mentioned that it's some I've definitely heard in terms from men, but for me, I mean, my some of my family's from the South in Tennessee. And I specifically remember older women like in their 70s or 80s telling me, Oh, you won the lottery with that hair, with with that skin. Like they literally said the lottery. And I <laughs> so I think that there is this, it's ingrained so much in our culture and really that's not healthy to your point because we're just perpetuating the lie. So Ronnie, you were, you were getting ready to uh, chime in. Yeah, but I don't remember what I was going to say. I agree. I mean, I, I was, I started thinking about the hair thing, you know, as I was kind of reading up and prepping for this, right. There's the, you know, there's, a, there's racism that we're dealing with, you know, kind of very boldly that affects all of us. Right. Is colorism something that you think we can tackle at the same time, right? Because that calls out in us internally, right? You, you made the point earlier that colorism is, is with, within the race, right? But there's, there's also research, as I'm sure you're aware, that many others prefer or are less intimidated by or they, you know, the, the, lightness, the lightness they are more comfortable with, right? And those are those people getting opportunities. So is there a way kind of within the racial construct to address, to address colorism, in a way that you think corporate corporate America could make some impact on. I, I have my thoughts, but I'm curious as to what you what you you yeah, general. It's a really great question, right? I think that it's a question that comes up for a lot of things. It's kind of like the white, the women's movement, right? It's like let's just fix the women's movement, and then everyone, all tides will rise, right? And what we have seen is that actually does not work. You need to solve for the lowest common denominator first. If you fix it for black women, you fix it for all women, right? And so if you fix it for the dark-skinned black women, you fix it for everybody. So that is kind of my position on that. And so the awareness that needs to be driven around colorism, like I actually think the conversation needs needs to switch a little. I think we need to clean our own house up too, right? And that has to happen. Unfortunately, we are not given the, the beauty of time to do this. It has to be somewhat done in parallel, right? Because we're fighting on all fronts for this equity. Yeah. yeah, it's a great point, Cecilia. And I've done a lot of a lot of social justice work, and that's always one of those prisms, right? You solve for the most oppressed. And I've been trying to push that conversation further, even within our community, within the Black community and other communities, around solving for the Black trans woman. Because really, yeah. if you look at every metric that's out there, a black trans woman is the most oppressed, the least educated, the the most homeless, uh, all, all of those parameters. So if you solve for her, <laughs> then a lot of things are going to change. Mm-hmm. And that's a very difficult conversation to have in our community, for sure, and in the broader context of social justice. But just talking a little bit about just within our community, what type of issues do you see? I mean, I remember my my grandmother was light. I mean, she was about the shade of like a fortune cookie, but she was like the darkest one in her family. And they called her Blackie. They called her Darkie. <laughs> you know, the, 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 all those names within the family. So, I mean, so, so what do we do about this? I mean, I mean, what has been your experience kind of within our own community and, you know, how do we get out? 
outside of this. This gets to Arania's question a little bit too, outside of the workplace, but what do we do for each other? I think it's awareness. And once you know better, you do better. And there's no time needed. Just shift. Yeah. Yeah. Just just and do the right thing. See, and if you see someone who is saying something, it's just like you would call someone out on something else. We need to bring awareness to them. You know, mm-hmm. I heard what you said. I think I understand what you meant. I'd like you to change your mind. You know, I mean, I think we just have to be clear. Clear mm-hmm. is kind, you know, tell people what they need to know, because I think people do kind of migrate through and people might think that they're giving, you know, a me a compliment on, oh, my hair or whatever. The question I love to ask you, tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? And mm-hmm. then have people explain and then they will like put, take their own foot out of their mouth. Hopefully. <laughs> Sometimes they won't, but hopefully they will. That's right. Yeah. I have a thought just because, you know, if you if you are at the table and you get a chance to make hiring decisions, right, you can actually be proactive about this and hiring the most competent, darkest skinned person you can find. And I'm put you on stage. <laughs> it's your show. I think there's there's very tangible things that you can actually do. I also think that, you know, so, so you mentioned you mentioned internalized racism. Right. So if I think about my niece, I would want to get to a place with her. where We can talk about, hey, how do you feel? about this topic, right? It's just a thing for you. I had to, you know, smack my sister for calling her chocolate drop, her little chocolate drop. And I was like, don't, let's not make the distinction. Let's not deliberately make a distinction. And I mean, that was for her was very loving. That's her baby. So it's hard for me to say that to her, but I'm like, why are we calling this? Why are we calling out her color, right? Same thing as crow or, you know, these other things, right? Why, why, why would we do such a thing? Right. Why should she feel or hear that? That's a thing. Nobody calls you Kamo Macchiato or whatever. Right? <laughs> <laughs> why, would, why would we do that? So just one in the community, just stop doing the, Stop doing that. But I think also just in the, from a work standpoint, we can actually be proactive and look for certain things. If you're going to if you once you break the racism kind of once you crack that open, then you, then we can look at who shows up for the best candidate. And, and we can go look for some people of certain skin colors. Mm-hmm. I, I, how else to do it? <laughs> I'm push a little bit on that one, right? Like, I'm not looking for no crusade for y'all to go find on the doctor, for everybody to find the dress and people. Hire them up, right? That's not, <laughs> that's not really the crusade. I think the crusade is probably more around recognizing when folks, when there's equivalence, right? And there is parity, right? Absolutely, and yeah. That gravitational pull, right? Because that gravitational pull tends to steer closer to white, light, right, right, that, that is a, a pull, less, and, and I really think a lot of that is rooted in, like, the intimidation factor that a lot of people see when they see dark skin, they've, they've assigned all these attributes, you know, threatening, intimidating to the color of skin, and so it's who they're more comfortable with, I just, I don't know, they, it's a culture fit, I just think they're better culture fit, right, than this other person, right, so it's the, it's the, awareness to your point, my girl. You know, I think Cecilia, I'll push back. I think you can, you can make people aware by some bias are difficult to overcome. You have to put people in places is all I'm saying, right? For that movement to happen. Certainly you, I mean, you're not hiring someone that's not qualified, right? That that's never the assumption. It's like, I'm going to go and deliberately all else being equal, choose that as as I possibly can. For the most part, you know, we've all been associated with like, whether that be, I think I heard Jamie say links earlier, 
like with Greek letter organizations, you know, all of that type of stuff, like whether it be Black NBA or whatever it is. I mean, but even when you look there, okay, there is a bit of a stigma or something that says, well, the AKAs only take the light skinned girls, or if you want to be dark, you go to you, you be a Zeta. What'd you say? We know that's not true, though. No, no, we absolutely know it's not true. But but when we're talking about challenging corporate America, we got to come back to even challenging ourselves. Right. Like so when we hear that type of stuff, because what I just heard you all say was kind of like that in the moment stuff. And you got to challenge people. Right. Or you have to be intentional or deliberate about some of the actions that you do. I mean, so we talk about all the time about diversifying like your applicant pool, diversifying like your interview, your interviewers or the interview slate. I mean, I think, you know, if I'm hearing this uh, from you all and I'm summarizing it is we actually have to kind of do the work ourselves. The other thing I wanted to touch on, Ronnie, you talked about your niece being called chocolate drop. Right. And I think that, you know, my son, they call they call my son chocolate dropper, too, because he's chocolatey. And so, I, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, a reclamation similar to the N word around this, like embracing of chocolate. I mean, I remember for a long time they were like, oh, you, you like a Hershey kiss or you're, th-, you know, like, are you? Oh, OK. The one thing I didn't like was, oh, you, you're cute for a dark skin girl. Like, but yes. Right there, back here, you know, that that twitch, that twitch. (laughs) I didn't hear that right, right? But I think there's more of a reclamation, adding a positivity. It's sort of similar to the movement of Black Girl Magic, like, you know, like really elevating that. And I think that's where people think they are, right? I, you know, and I think you're right. One of the things that's so important that we all have to remember doing this work, whether it's social justice work, whether it's race work, whether it's colorism work, is asking, how does that make you feel, right? Mm-hmm. For my son, it makes him feel like he belongs, right? It makes him feel like, you know, because I've been telling him he's yummy all his life, right? And so he's now getting like this uh, external validation that, yes, I am, I'm chocolate and I'm yummy. So my goal in that, when that comes through, is to, when he hears something different than that, when he's told or he encounters that, he has already been indoctrinated that his his skin tone is beautiful and he's mm-hmm. handsome. I tell him every morning, good morning, handsome. Good morning, my chocolate. Yeah. I already told him his big brother's name will be Chocolate Thunder, right? That's what I decided. I don't care which organization, but Chocolate Thunder, you know? So <laughs> I do that to instill in him like how beautiful he is because every day I can be in, I personally as a dark skin can encounter some slight some microaggression that comes my way. And I, it's my way of building his armor. So mm-hmm. it'd be great as your niece is growing to have that dialogue with her and ask her how it makes her feel. If it makes her feel uncomfortable, then yes. You know, obviously we're going to push on that. That's not the goal. But I'd be curious, like when people are assigning these nicknames, like what their intent and their motivation is, because I know what mine is. And it's just to make sure he has the armor on. And when he does encounter someone who does not love him and is not sending best interest, that he has that. Because I didn't have that. My parents didn't even know what to say about that. Right. So I had to figure that out along the way. So it's a really I can definitely relate to that because I think my parents needed to for my brother and I always said you will not always be treated well, but you need to know they just don't know you yet. 
So you just need to show them. So I always come with that is that when people, I think when I was very young, it was just a need to pet. You know, I just didn't really know. But I was just like, okay, you're not being kind to me because you just don't know me yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that was their interesting way of like trying to like put this cloak of protection that wasn't always there. But so I just always entered the room like, okay, you're being a certain way, but you just don't know me yet. So I do think that if it's how you and how your self-confidence and who you at the core of you is. So I, I love to hear that you're doing that with your son. That's fabulous. Because I think it's, it carried me a long way. Even now, you know, I'm just like, if people are a trip, I'm like, okay, they just don't know me yet. And even when I say that, I'm like, that's kind of crazy, but that's just ingrained in me. So Ronnie, it's something when you first introduced yourself that, that struck with me was when you're talking about how you grew up very poor. And so I just wanted to peel the onion back a little bit on this whole idea around class and privilege and, and colorism and how all of that plays into itself. So if you don't mind, just maybe share a little bit more around that in your experience with it. And then we can we can open it up to everyone else. Well, first off, are you still poor? Are you still <laughs> I have fixed that problem. (laughs) (laughs) You know, knowing what poor feels like, you make it, you make it intentional that you won't be that way. Yeah, you're you're, you're allergic to that now. I understand. It is true. (laughs) I'm allergic, I'm allergic to that. And I tell you one of the first things that I said I would always have, always, always, always have is a washer and dryer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Going yeah. going to that laundromat. Yeah. Going to that laundromat yeah. is not cool. Not cool. Can, I, can I paint the picture even more? Can I add a little more? Yeah. Going to the laundromat with four siblings pushing a shopping cart. Okay. To the laundromat next to the Dollar General store. Like it was just insane, and I was old enough to be humiliated at that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, and yeah. it's funny that you said that because. I remember, uh, like, so when my friends come over, they they clown because I have all of these drinks and all of this food. Like, I, I am a I am a food hoarder, right? Because so when when COVID hit, it wasn't you no problem. I was like, I was set. Like, I was like, oh, I've been waiting for this. I've been preparing for this. But the the thing is, is when you grow up and you look in the refrigerator and there are no options, right? When you're in there making a syrup sandwich. You know what I'm saying? When you're in there making like cornflakes or no? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're like you're not trying to like make something out of nothing. It makes you kind of think about this. When you're talking about you know being allergic to that and making sure that you work extra hard so you don't get there, I I, I do get that. And those are some of the code switching moments that we have because we can't really let our guards down and talk about being that broke. You know what I'm saying? Like in the meetings, you can't really do that. But I digress, Yorania. You're, yeah. you're, you're ready to no, uh, you're, give you're us some fire. Spot on, right? And I had to, you know, I'll say, I'll start off by saying I had to let, the, I had to, at some point, I had to let my story go. But I had to let yeah. my story fuel me in order to kind of help others overcome things that I, it took me too long to overcome, right? The classism piece, right? So if colorism wasn't a conscious thing for me, which it wasn't. I'm the fuzzy hair little girl with the corduroy pants on in the summer. God bless my parents who did their best, right? You, you can only get so much stuff from Goodwill and, you know, but, or who wore the same clothes. I had a week's worth of clothes and my parents had gotten divorced and my dad took us to Mississippi, which was hotter. And the same clothes, like a week's worth of clothes I wore for two years, you know? There were just some formative kind of moments that just shaped who I, who I am. And, and it also shaped how I showed up. Right. I showed up thinking they're looking at my shoes. 
they are Mm -hmm. down their nose at me. And that was probably the biggest thing for me. It's like when I showed up, looking how I looked, I always felt that I felt people looking at me a certain way. And you know what I'm talking about, right? We were the dirty kids in the Greers. We were the dirty kids in the grocery. Not dirty, because dirty because we played outside. Kids nonetheless, right? And too much hair to keep up with. And my mom would let us go fuzzy for a few days. And it was fine. It was a weekend, whatever. But we were those kids. I was, I remember being that kid. And I was, you know, old enough to feel the ire, to feel the eyes, to, 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 to it was tangible, right? And so I, I have a super strong aversion to people who look down those on other people. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is, it's beyond, it's beyond. And so like, and so when I'm sure when I show up, Today and you know, and for years, I'm a wine drinker. I like nice shit, right? I can <laughs> you won't even know. <laughs> People meet me and they say, Oh, I bet your parents were professors or shit like that. Like, however, they identify who I am and how I show up today, what they think my upbringing was, couldn't be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Like, closeted poor girl, not not closeted, I'm, I'm fine talking about it. But the way we perceive people in our adult lives today can be completely different than how we grew up. And so for me, it was still class and how I hid the fact that I grew up in the projects when I was a senior in high school by just like overdoing, checking every box. I was a cheerleader. I was the battalion commander. I was like top 10. I was like everything. And no one could come to my house. And I probably lied about it. I'm pretty sure I did. No one ever picked me up. You know what I'm saying? I drove like this awful hoopty, but my whole thing was like, I just got to get out of here right before they discover. <laughs> so that was how, that's why, that's why kind of starting off colorism wasn't the thing for me. Mm-hmm. It was less than and having to kind of always climb out of that. Right. And, and now it turns into my way of relating to people is just on the level. Like I, you know, in, in the course of the career, if I'm at a hotel, I have already made friends with the janitor and the manager of the hotel, right? Mm-hmm. But like crossing lines is never an issue. And I remember encountering people would be like, why are you talking to the woman cleaning the room? We can have a whole conversation. Mm-hmm. Not that that's really abnormal, right? But some people don't acknowledge people. Right. No, I, I, I really relate to that. I'm from South Central LA, around here. So I, I remember pack, we used to pack our Eagly cooler. I used to make bologna sandwiches for my whole family because we were going to the laundry mat. That was going to be like a six hour, four hour. Uh, Did y'all fry them though? Did y'all fry the bologna? You know what? I used to toast the bread, Wonder Bread. <laughs> and I used to toast the bread. My daddy liked Miracle Whip, so we slap it on there. Yep. Yeah. Bologna in four places go to get the bubble going. Yes, yeah. that's right, because you don't want it to shrink all yeah. up. <laughs> you don't. You don't. <laughs> We're giving a shout out to Cecil. We're giving a shout out to Cecil. Shout out to Cecil Green. (laughs) We were serious about that. So like, I completely understand that. And I'm very much, that's very similar. Like owning a washer and dryer and I bought my first house was like, uh, like I went, it was like a meticulous experience picking out my washer and dryer because I didn't have to go to laundry mat anymore. It was like, wow, this is how people live. So I completely get that, that definition of classism. And I went to private school, like rich private school in LA. And so 
all my friends have moved. They were either living in like the Black Beverly Hills, we call Baldwin Hills in LA, or they're living somewhere in like North Hollywood. I mean, you know, I went to school with, it was great. I think there were like 15 or 16 Black girls in my class of 92. It was a very small group, but they never came to my house. I never had them over. They didn't come down to South Central, right? I remember my best friend, she got into an accident sneaking, driving me home. And it was like a big, like, scandal because how is she going to explain why she was down and why she was in the hood to her parents, to her Filipino parents at the time. Right. So it was like a whole thing. Right. So yeah, that, that is all the layers. I mean, the intersectionality of all the things we carry, right. It's rich. And each of those things, I mean, I remember my girlfriend who lived in Ladera Heights, which is the new version of the black Beverly Hills, right. In LA. I remember they were of the lighter skin hue. She had some other challenges, but I remember going to her house and I was a poor kid. I didn't know I went to private school. I was still the poorer kid, right? And her asking her daughter, pulling her daughter in the room and asking her why this black bee was in her house. That was me in high school. Now her mother had an alcoholic, alcoholism problem, obviously. <laughs> like, even, even experiencing that though, like it was very just jarring and hurtful, you know, to have to go through that. So it was like this play not only did, so in that time, it's going back to like colorism. It wasn't even just the class issue that I was struggling with at that time. It was also the colorism issue because she was very, very fair, like Creole, you know, never seen the light of darkness ever. Right. And so she's really, really fair. And so to hear that from an adult also was very jarring of my experience as a, I think I might have been in the 10th grade, you know, I was still forming. I think in terms of how I grew up, there was a spectrum, right? So certainly I had a very privileged childhood. Like we went on vacation, we flew private, like that was my experience, which is not common. But my parents have this approach, as many white people do, that, you know, you, now you're grown, so go out and do go on your own. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, my parents paid for my first year of college and then said, you need to take it from there. And so I think that that was a little bit of a, <laughs> a surprise. So I have definitely been to the laundromat. I have made the spam sandwiches. I have the iron, you know, all the things that people do in college. Wait, with an iron? Later on, public transportation, you know, they get- Did you say you you made a sandwich with an iron? Oh, absolutely. In the door. Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Because we didn't have a car. So we we got to go to the grocery store and with my roommate, we could get her to go to the grocery store. We'd get stuff, put it in our little fridge. And then we would, because I didn't have the second year, I actually couldn't afford to buy my lunch pass to get my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So we were doing the collective potlucks. and Y'all was getting creative. Y'all was doing some creative creative cookery. Y'all was doing some creative creative chefing. Yeah. You you (laughs) didn't qualify the wide span of both. (laughs) You didn't qualify for food stamps. No, but you know what? I actually did buy food stamps from some people because when because people would sell them outside of the grocery store, and I'm like, okay, I, I, you know. yes, yeah. yes. tell it on itself. Yeah, tell it on itself. Yeah, I mean, this was back with verification wasn't the same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. But I do remember thinking. My first experience to a lot of, I would say, Black people were very professional 
well-off Black people, right? Doctors, lawyers. So they had money. And so I think that my initial thought was, oh, there's not really a huge difference. Like I said, it wasn't until I got probably more into later in high school and college that and when I moved to Long Beach and after I, the first year I was in the dorm, second year I wasn't, I was in an apartment with a lot of folks. And, um, <laughs> and that's probably when I realized, wow, this is very different. Wow, man, such a great conversation with Cecilia, Jamie and Arania. Just reflect on the impact that each woman's skin color and how it impacted various aspects of their life and how people made judgments about them, mm-hmm. okay? How privilege was dispersed even. Yeah, amongst them, right? Just right. based on their skin tone. It's crazy. And it's, I mean, moral of the story and that whole thing. I mean, it's an old phrase, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds cliche, right. but it's absolutely, absolutely true. true. You listen to those stories. I mean, you would never know just looking at them, all the depth yeah, of right. the stories that they had, uh, you know, layers oh, that they had to them. Yeah, those layers. And now look, you and I have been talking about our stories. We talked to the sisters and heard some of their stories. But Keith, let's just kind of just rewind it back and go back to the basics, man. Let's just hit them with some of those receipts. Got those receipts. And we just we just got a couple for you today. We don't have to, we don't have to beat this beat this to death today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll share some receipts on uh, the impact of colorism. And receipt number one is there's a famous study done by the University of Georgia, I think it was back in 2006, that showed that employers preferred light-skinned men to dark-skinned men regardless of their qualifications. And a light-skinned black male with a bachelor's degree was preferred over a dark-skinned male with an MBA, if they had, even if they had the same... Same skills. Yeah, let, let's not talk about the intimidation factor. Right. <laughs> That's <laughs> you right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so which, is, which is ridiculous, man. Receipt number two, you know, Vanderbilt University conducted, you know, another study over 2,000 immigrants from around the world and found that those with lighter skin earn 8 to 15% more in salary than similarly qualified immigrants of darker hues. There you go. We talk about this. We talk about this stuff, you know, whether it's uh, with some of our Latinx, you know, brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. We talk about it where grandmothers are like asking how light was the kid. Yeah, that's right. Hey, you just had it with uh, Harry and Megan. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The family sure asking about that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. For some reason it matters. Our third receipt is I'm going to try and bring a little social justice, criminal justice lens to the conversation because there's lots of studies out there that show that lighter skinned people receive lighter prison sentences. They are less likely to be convicted and even less likely to receive the death penalty. Crazy. So there's this bias that's just built into the system around the closer you are to white the better off you're going to be. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's again, we talk about having a complexion for the connection. Mm-hmm. This is really what this we're talking is, about. This is it. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is, is it. it. So look, Keith, as crazy as these receipts, you know, have been, and as much as we've heard the sisters talk about their experiences, let's actually follow this up here with some of the secrets, you know, from yeah. these, some of the key secrets from, from these experiences. Yeah, and we just got two today. We're keeping it short and simple. And so the first secret is just to stop it. Yeah. It's, you know, for all of us in communities of color, we just need to stop hating on each other because it's hard enough out here without all of that drama built on it. So let's just support each other and stop buying into these colorism shenanigans. I like that. Simple. Stop mm-hmm. it. Secret number two is actually just lean in. Yep. 
the only way we're going to change the system is to lean in. As we talked about in episode 31 in terms of doing the right thing, mm-hmm. okay, we got to, you know, check our biases and provide meaningful opportunities for our darker-hued brethren, Yeah, right? I mean, we all see it, you know, and you have an opportunity to actually impact it and stop it, as Keith said. So lean in. Now, let's just join hands and just do the right thing. Please man. do. That's right. Keep it simple today. Stop it. Lean in. And man, you know, as this has been another powerful episode, and we want to thank Cecilia, Jamie, and Irania again, but we ain't done with them yet. <laughs> We're going to bring them back to talk about their experiences as black leaders in the workplace at a later episode. But in the meantime, if you can find more resources on what we discussed today by going to our website and looking in them show notes, we got lots of lots of data in there for you. Yeah, and if you like what we're giving to you, here's how you can help your brothers out. I know we tell you every week, but again, we want to keep telling you. Stock up on that merch. We got some new stuff in there, right? I'm excited about it. So we're kicking off June, which is also Pride Month, with some hot LGBTQ pride designs. And we're also donating 25% of the proceeds from purchases this month to a GLSEN and the Center for uh, Human Development in the Bay Area. So, again, get your friends and colleagues to listen and then write a review on Apple if you can, please. Yes, that will help us out a whole bunch. And, Rick, I know this was a very serious topic today, but I know one thing that we like a little lighter hued is the color of our cocktails, boy. (laughs) Heavy on the kettle. Light on a crayon. There you go. <laughs> and before we sign off, again, we want to remind everybody, just go and get that vaccine. Don't be scared. Yeah, Don't be scared. Just handle it. That's right. Ricky and I have been vaxxed for a couple months now. We're doing fine. Feeling great. Like to be out there in the streets again. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so thanks for joining us on Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. Later. Thank you all for listening today. Hopefully you gained a secret or two that can be applied as your journey continues. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please subscribe to our podcast, share with friends, and donate via Patreon. Check us out at www.secrets.com to get more information about our secret services. Don't forget to tune in next time for more Hot Fire. Until then, cheers. Cheers.